This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, welcome to O Ship. This week we had a really cool topic that I think is on a lot of people's minds, especially if they own a business, run a business, or are marketers. And we want to talk about digital marketing in the post-pandemic era. Digital commerce took off massively during the pandemic as lockdowns became a new way of life. They were forcing businesses and consumers across all kinds of demographics to embrace digital. And what we saw was this huge tectonic shift in consumer shopping behaviors, and many businesses ended up pivoting to digital for solutions. And with that, they were experimenting with new innovative ways to connect to consumers and frankly, spending a ton of money in this space. The businesses that pivoted, well, they benefited greatly as e-commerce ended up growing by 55% during COVID. But as the pandemic has slowly begun to recede, the market has changed again. And now these DTC brands in particular are underperforming for a variety of reasons that range from an economic downturn to Facebook ad prices rising to Apple's iOS privacy changes. So today I've got three leading experts who are going to come together and have a chat about how marketers can best navigate these unknown waters over the months and years to come. And so with that, here we go with another week of ship. Everyone, welcome to Oship. How's it going today? Krista, welcome. Great to see you. Erin, Katie, so thrilled you're here. I want to get it out quickly today. We haven't done that many four-person shows on O'Ship today, so we're going to do our best to manage all the bright minds we've got here today. All of you work at Chameleon Collective. I've had a chance to work with all you personally, and I know we've got some very clever people here. But for the audience that doesn't know you, in kind of 30 seconds or less, can you very succinctly tell people why they should care about your opinion today? I want to start with you, Krista. Sure. So I have been marketing for 20 or so years. I've spent most of my career growing what I would say are culturally connected brands and running in-house digital teams for a variety of businesses for HBO, Ubisoft, SoulCycle, and most recently Compass. A few highlights. Early in my career, I built Paramount Pictures' first in-house digital media team. I went also to Ubisoft to build out their digital marketing practice is a really critical time when they had this huge opportunity to compete with EA and Activision. And I was at HBO for four years where I was certainly worked on the program marketing side, um, running digital and social for a number of shows. But then I also spent my last two years building out the direct-to-consumer marketing function within this organization that had never owned acquiring and retaining subscribers. And then the last five years, I'd say I've been working with more entrepreneurial businesses from SoulCycle to Compass to B2B and B2C tech companies. Beyond being really impressive, you actually sounds really fun. You've worked on some really cool stuff over the years. Nice. I'm really fortunate, for sure. Zarin, over to you. Yeah, so I've been mostly focused in the paid media space for a little bit over 10 years now, working with some brands like Walmart, Capital One most recently, Cartier. A lot of omni-channel retailers that have physical stores, but also growing e-com programs as well. One like 
career success story that really stands out is we did a campaign for Cartier that set the record for the highest ad recall campaign in the retail space for Facebook. So got a chance to work right. with brands that, that were really exciting, that had a lot of heritage, but also got to play with big budgets and really see what that impact did, you know, for the business, but also to, to test and learn and understand what works and what doesn't. That's kind of been my domain for the last 10 years and excited to have a conversation with all you guys on some of those topics. Wonderful. And Katie, I'd love to hear from you as well. Sure. So I've been doing marketing about 15 years. I got my start in traditional CPG working for Dannon. Then Hills Pet Nutrition, a cool, great company. And then Hallmark along the way, I did a lot of brand management, product development, innovation. So really started on the brand side. And then I spent a good chunk of time with Kaplan across their higher education and their test prep division. And that's where I got an opportunity to sink my teeth in on the digital side and really figured out that was my passion. And I see a lot of opportunity there. I've been with the collection for the last two years, having the time of my life, taking that client experience and applying it to my clients now, which have ranged from startups to brands, both small, young and old, small and large, and even agency. And so I've really focused the last five years of my career on social. And it's a perfect place for me because with my brand expertise from sort of my brand side work and the combination of that and performance marketing, it's a great intersection of brand and performance. And on top of that, it, there's just a lot of newness and innovation. So it's a really fun space. Yeah. One of the things I really loved about being able to pull this panel together today is we've got a really diverse set of minds. So while everyone here has experience in growth and building brands, you know, some of you kind of over-index a little bit on the performance marketing side. Some of you over-index a little bit like with the brand, but still playing the performance and growth marketing side. One of the things I think is really cool about your background, Katie, is that not only do you work on a lot of like paid social in particular, but you also actually do a lot of organic social work and so I just feel like we've got a lot of different perspective here so we can really come together with some interesting points of view. So on that note, let's talk about this at a high level first. And so one of the things that's really obvious when I touched on this in the intro is that consumer behaviors and even how people are discovering are has changed. I think people became significantly more digital during the pandemic, I should say. So, you know, we've got so much diversity in the thought of the different folks are here. And one of the things I touched on in the intro that I think it should be obvious to anyone out there is that the way that people are finding basically products, discovery, the way they're behaving has really changed. And a lot of people got really digital. They weren't digital natives. They were forced to become digital folks to change the way they lived their lives during the pandemic. But then I think that's continued to evolve post-pandemic. Maybe should we start with you, Krista? Have you got an opinion on how people should be thinking about their marketing strategies so they can keep up? Yeah, sure. Look, like the digital marketer in me was honestly really thrilled to see digital technology adoption and innovative solutions accelerate at a pretty rapid pace during the pandemic. You know, the businesses that certainly pivoted were the ones that succeeded and thrived. And from a consumer point of view, we, we were very much in a place of trying to get anything that we wanted when we wanted it. And the brands that were able to meet those expectations were the ones that won. And I think there's certainly certain consumer behaviors which they think have stuck. And 
brands are going to be challenged to continue to meet. Certainly, that convenience factor is going to be essential. And also quality experiences consumers are looking for curated from top to bottom, from the moment they re exposed to your brand through an ad to what is that experience at the cart. And then that with that comes like a much more opportunity to be more personalized. And so I think some of the businesses that were able to come rise to the occasion and deliver and can continue to deliver that are going to continue to excel. I think where we saw some of the biggest disruption and the biggest challenge was around loyalty, right? It was the first time that loyalty was completely shattered and people were trying on new shopping behaviors and new products in ways that they weren't before. And the task now, especially in the D2C space, is as, you know, Facebook ads are not working, maybe in the same way they were, the cost, and Darren can speak to this and Katie can speak to this better than me, the cost to acquire through digital ads, through social ads and search may not pay off in the same way, particularly as consumers are now shifting to be in person and wanting to shop in person. And so my big advice for brands is twofold. One, thinking about how do you get back to a place where you're really trying to build emotional connection with consumers, creating branded experiences, content experiences both from, you know, top of funnel awareness, but even in the shopping experience, whether that is e-commerce online, but also as more D2C brands move to retail, how can you be partnering with retail partners to be able to create really unique experience-driven outcomes for consumers? I got to tell you, I really called it wrong on, I felt like the behaviors that people were going to adopt during the pandemic. There's some study I read year and a half or two years ago, I guess it would be now, it was talking about how when a, basically a routine transcends a certain number of days, and it was whatever, 70, 80, 90 days or whatever it was, that, then it basically becomes routine and it becomes like more of a perpetual habit. And I really felt that a very large portion of people that were, had adopted these new kind of digital behaviors would stick. And I do think that there was certainly a huge incremental shift in more people kind of being like these kind of new generation, you know, I don't want to call them digital natives, real, you embrace the digital behaviors, but yeah, a significant number of people were like, yeah, that, I'm good. Get me back into my stores. Thank God for retail, by the way. I mean, I don't want to see any industry collapse. I'd love to hear any other opinions. Katie, have you got anything or is there any you'd like to share on this? Yeah, I think, Freddie, I was in your camp too. I was fully expecting folks to stick with those digital behaviors, but I think that there's become a shift of sort of this hybrid like I want to come out of my hole and I want to be with the humans again and I want to touch and feel and have that tactile experience. But I also want that experience to extend online. So we are seeing an increase in the desire for brands to have that dual experience. So I think that while we do see a return to the in-person experience, I don't see a diminish in expectations of what that digital experience is supposed to be. So I think what we're seeing, and I think some of the pressure is the bar's just gotten higher. I think there's mm -hmm. an expectation you've moved maybe from in-person tactile, face-to-face -face experience, whatever your, your business is, to a digital experience, to now I want both. And I want it to be collaborative and I want it to be seamless. And I think that's a challenge that brands have to manage with consumers. We've kind of, as a consumer, we've forced brands to show us, to Krista's point, a lot of people stood up to the challenge. A lot of brands raised to the challenge and now 
those expectations are just as high as they were, but we want them in person too. Zara, anything you want to add? I mean, I can tell you my own personal experience as someone that considers themselves very like digital native. Mm. Being in New York City, I can walk downstairs and there's a deli, there's a grocery store, you know, maybe sometimes two or three on the same block. So I have access to the things that I need. But one of the things that I found that really shifted for me was starting to use delivery apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats. And I told myself, because I'm a very health conscious person, I was like, I don't like using the apps because I don't make the greatest decisions. And I was like, as soon as this is over, I'm just going back to the deli. And I still use these apps. I don't use them with the same frequency as I used to, but they've become a part of my life. And so I think to the point Katie was making, yeah, it's like a hybrid. It's not to the same extreme as maybe a year ago, but these new buying decisions and apps now have a place in my life that they didn't in the past. And to the point Krista was making around personalization, I think this is like very evident from the sense of, I recall I was working with during 2019, 2020, a company called Signet and they're one of the largest retail diamond jewelry businesses in the world. They have over 3,300 stores globally, physical stores, brick and mortar. And I think they cut like 800 of those to kind of become a little bit more lean. And one of the things they quickly realized was, hey, we have, you know, traditionally all this business coming in through the malls, mall traffic, foot traffic. We have this growing e-com business, but now the holidays are coming up and some of these price points of these products People want to come and touch these products. They want to feel it. And when you have like products in the lower price ranges of 20, 30, 50, people don't care. But when you start getting to the thousands of dollars, people want to touch and feel things. Mm -hmm. And that's where buy online, pick up in store became mm -hmm. sort of a thing. And we saw, you know, at least within Facebook and within the platforms, we had the capabilities to discern, is this going to be a in-store traffic consumer or is this person more likely to buy online? Or can we get someone that's likely to pay online, but pick up in store? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that you can target at that level in some of these platforms based on those behaviors. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that piece of the tech didn't exist until, you know, 2019, 2020, when there was a real business need for it because mm -hmm. businesses realize things are going to change and we need to adapt. But yeah, if there's an action that's being taken that can be recorded, you can optimize against that information. And that capability certainly exists. I think what's changed now from less of a platform level and a business level is that there's some verticals that now over-index for that. I don't think a lot of people are using that buy online pickup in store across all verticals. But one thing that I, I'm definitely seeing is within grocery, especially when you're in markets where it's driving markets, where there's no utility of walking into the store and doing the shopping. Some people might see that as, uh, hey, I'd just rather have my groceries ready and just pull up and Walmart has this. So they've really, you know, doubled down on that capability. So yeah, it's that personalization of the experience and also having this hybrid relationship with digital where it's not just online and it's not just in store. It's finding some consumers want this middle ground. Interesting. I think that what's so exciting about this is Almost all brands have different segments of audiences that have different need states. So many moons ago, I worked for Sony Consumer Electronics. And one of the things that was really evident in their segmentation is 
there were certain groups of buyers who were very comfortable reading textbooks about a particular, you know, particularly like television, for instance, and they would feel no problem just buying it online, whereas others truly did need to go into the store. They needed to actually touch the television. They needed to have a conversation with someone who could provide guidance and help them with that decision making. And so I think it's two things. Number one, how can any of these brands, just when they're thinking about that path to purchase, really capitalize on the combination of digital experiences and in-person in order to capture the widest breadth of consumers out there? I want to change gears a little bit. And yeah, I think we've really touched on a lot of interesting subjects related to consumer behavior. We've touched on some of the ways we can target it. But the reality is one of the things we really wanted to focus on today was the fact that a lot of these digital acquisition channels or retention channels are maturing, they're evolving, what was working before may not be working now, and really helping people think about how they should be investing their money or their time or their resources, however you want to think about it, to keep up. Just at a high level, from my standpoint, one of the things that I think is really important you know, going into 2023 is that people are really nailing down their retention strategies. We just kind of mentioned of loyalty earlier, but I think with acquisition costs going so high, you know, making sure you're not losing the customers that you did spend so much to acquire is going to be really, really important. I can definitely expand on that, but I'd love to hear from this kind of panel of experts about what you guys are thinking about in terms of, you know, well, like I said, well, where do you want to, where do you want to lean in? Zaren, why don't we, why don't we start with you this time? So what's your take on this? Where should people be focusing their time? And what do you think about, you know, either new emerging channels or how people should think about some of the existing channels they've been using post-pandemic? Yeah, that's always in the mind of a marketer. It's like, where's my money going? Where should I put my next dollar? And, you know, if you're a brand that's already been advertising for a while, you have benchmarks. So you know what's been working for you and what's not working for you. I think that there is in the performance marketing landscape an overt reliance when it comes to search and social as these like lower funnel touch points that have a lot of scale and most brands do their forecasting and their planning with this like bottoms up approach where they're just again where can i get the biggest return for my dollar and as i exhaust that i go to the the next tactic that's maybe not as efficient but the next best mm -hmm. tactic one thing that's definitely been on the rise is ctv and marketplaces Marketplaces, including things like Amazon, you know, these third-party platforms that are great for product discovery. And as we know, Google has been losing a lot of market share because a lot of consumers are just starting some product discovery searches on Amazon because they know that that's potentially where they're going to actually end up buying it. So the idea is get as close as possible to the purchase point. Google is a platform that's just, it's one extra click into your website or into the point of purchase. And I think we've seen this also in the paid social space with the creation of like Instagram shops and Facebook shops and sort of this evolution of social commerce where it's how do we shorten the path from inspiration or product discovery to then let the consumer just, you know, act on that impulse and buy right away. I think also what's important to note is that sometimes the products that do well in these like social commerce and marketplace experiences might not always be the products that the business really wants to push. It might be certain products that do well in those spaces. So I think it's very important if you're a multi-product brand to really try to understand not just the channels and tactics, 
But to look at things from like a category perspective, so like Walmart was a client that I recently worked with and they have an entire general merchandising division that's broken up by like electronics and baby and apparel. And what you might find is that, again, some of these categories might do very well in search. Other products where it's just you know, maybe the category is more emerging, people are less likely to find the products through search. And that's where discovery and using things like, you know, social or any kind of platforms that aren't search-based can be incredibly well. So I think it's always looking at things through the lens of not just the channels and the tactics, but also go one step deeper and then look at the actual products that you're selling and sort of understand what's the optimal mix. One side note from that is that CTV has seen a ton of acceleration, which makes sense because again, more people were spending more time indoors and that sort of fuel. And by the way, just to make sure if anyone's not familiar with the lingo, can you clearly define CTV for anyone who may not be familiar with it? Absolutely. I like to think of CTV just like as programmatic TV. So connected TVs are the TVs that you can buy nowadays that have like Roku built into it. Or even if you have a TV that doesn't have that streaming capability, if you're using like a Roku device or an Amazon Fire Stick, it's connected TV. And the reason why it's because it now allows advertisers to buy that inventory programmatically, regardless if you're watching something on Hulu or Disney Plus or whatever it is. And the benefit being it's targeted. It's not spray and pray. However, that channel is growing a lot. I don't have hands-on experience with that channel, but it's something to definitely watch. And I don't know if anybody else has any points on Connected TV, but I think it's an interesting one to watch. Yeah. Before we jump in on that, I do want to quickly acknowledge one of the things you said that I think is really worthy of dialing into more is working about how there's a trend that you want to get closer to where the consumer is behaving. So where people were operating on Facebook and Google, you know, if you're trying to grow your Amazon business, people are spending money on Amazon very successfully. And I, that's still been very effective for a lot of the work that we've been doing with various clients. There's a whole general rise of this kind of category called retail media, if people aren't familiar. And it's literally like these ad platforms, whether you're Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or Amazon's kind of product, which I think almost pioneered it on some level. They weren't the first, but they're certainly the, the biggest where your people are saying, Hey, I, I don't want to be on these big networks. I'm going to have these dedicated networks that run very specifically on my site. And it's as close as you can get to the consumer. If we know that being in the top search results is the most viable thing you can do on Google. Why wouldn't you want to be on the top search results on Walmart or Home Depot as an example, or whatever, Best Buy, you know, and all these people are coming out. I don't know if Best Buy has one, but I know the others do. So I'd love to jump to you, Katie, and I definitely want an opinion from each of you, because I know all of you are going to have a, actually a different and interesting point of view, but Katie, I'd love to hear, are there any kind of um, things that you're kind of leaning in on or excite you from a practical sense of marketing strategies or tactics? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think piggybacking a little bit off of what Zarin said, you know, we do see, particularly in the social space, we see new channels popping up all the time. We see, from my perspective, my clients, particularly on the small and medium size, are always asking about what about this channel? Should we be doing this and that? And I think it's really important that we understand what the objectives are and what the roles of those channels play in the marketing mix. And so I think as with any time in history, this one in particularly, uh, just as important, making sure that there's an alignment of audience. Is your audience going to be there? Are they in the mindset when they're in that space or on that channel? If you're looking for a conversion particularly. And do you have, this is probably the biggest challenge that I see, particularly with the small, medium-sized clients is 
do you have the resources to support a full investment on these new and emerging channels? Because it's not a one size fits all. You don't do one asset for social and then blast it across your various social platforms. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the conversations as we look into 23 that I'm having Mm -hmm. is around where does growth come from and what is required to support that next level. And I then, definitely have some thoughts. I want to pick your brain for this. I've got a good question, I think, lined up that will kind of expand on that. Okay. I'll just sidebar for one second and talk. I know part of your question at the onset was around retention. And I think this is where we are seeing a really interesting resurgence of organic social. The ability to create community in these digital spaces is incredibly powerful. And we see that happen in feed. So in your feed posts, we're seeing that happen a lot, but they're also happening in these closed groups around Facebook groups. That's such an interesting idea. I think a lot of people who don't know a lot about marketing, but I think some people are looking at organic social to be this top of funnel business generator for them. And it's not really paid social is great for that because you can go outside your reach. But where people, I think, have been less enthused with investing in social the last couple of years on some level, it's ongoing community engagement. It's a great retention channel. Yep. That's a great call out. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity to build brand loyalty in your social communities. And I think just being on top of the algorithm, what its priorities are, and then being able to adjust your strategies organically to make sure that you max out your impressions and your reach with those. Very nice. Thanks. Great suggestions. Krista, anything you want to add? Yeah, same on the retention front. I've always said that great acquisition begins with great retention. My advice for brands is to invest the time and the resources to make sure you're digging into your customer data to really understand, A, not only who are your high-value customers and what are their profiles, but also what do they want? What is the value that you can provide to them that's beyond the transaction? We all know is that A customer is always going to be more valuable long-term if there is an emotionally driven relationship with that customer. And so that means sometimes doing surveys, conducting interviews, and spending the time to really understand what is in the mindset of that customer now and how does then your product, your service, be able to help meet that need. And the output is not necessarily just an offer. It most likely should be in the place of How can you provide them an experience, a value beyond the product or service that is still authentic and related? So, you know, you look at Sephora and their loyalty program has been massive in terms of driving business growth continuously. And the heart of that program is not just about certainly offers. It is about exclusivity and access. And it is about access to experiences that you couldn't get otherwise. Or if you look at even the opportunity to utilize those really loyal customers and turn them into advocates for your brand and building a really successful referral program, that is a huge opportunity to be spending less money on trying to acquire new customers and using your most value customers to help drive them and bring in new prospects. And I think Morning Brew is another great example. They built a referral program that is not based on offers, but really based on experiences and a really interesting like gamification around that. So spend the time. It's not always like the go-to first when people are putting together their marketing stack, but I think it's essential and I think it's going to be critical in this current climate. And sort of to build on that point of retention and tie it back to like the opportunity around organic social, 
there's one platform in particular that I'm very bullish on, and it's YouTube. And if you think about it, I mean, YouTube is becoming the new TV. It's not obviously the only option, but definitely within certain audiences, as you skew young, they can tell you YouTubers the way that I think I would refer to celebrities when I was in middle school and high school. Kids nowadays, they don't know like who like a famous actor or person is, but they know these YouTubers and they hold them in that regard. So I think about YouTube as like the modern day TV. In fact, I feel like I personally spend more time consuming content through YouTube than to TV. And so I think on an organic level, the scale that is on that platform is immense. And time and time again, yeah. When you can hold someone's attention for eight to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20, there is a completely different level of a relationship that you have with those audiences. And a perfect example is the incredible work Mr. Beast has done. And it's so funny because I was seeing tweets come up about the cost of a Super Bowl ad and they were talking about it being $7 million. And Mr. Beast chimes in and uh, on that tweet and he's just like, you know, they should just come work with us. And yeah, there's such a massive opportunity to tap into not just the ability to personalize things to a niche or to a culture on YouTube. You have the scale, you can build the relationship directly. But I often see that most advertisers that tread into YouTube, they do it from a paid perspective, which it could still be quite impactful because of that reach. But on the organic side, it's just like, imagine if you were doing both, you know, you can have that halo effect of the people that see your media and your ads, and then also can drive some of that subscription as well. But it's a lot harder these days to make the case for creative to the CFO, you know, to help when you're talking about what's the ROI of things and translate what creative can do. And there's this really great recent study that LinkedIn did around this. And one of the points they made from this, and I'll digress after this, is that a perfect example is Intel's sound branding, like the bum, like the Pentium processor, whatever. It's like everybody can recognize that. And there's a value because people can recognize that. It's just harder to sometimes understand the value of creative and content. But when done right with a platform that has global scale, at an organic level, it can really have a positive ROI and build upon what you're doing from a paid acquisition perspective. I didn't really understand that YouTube felt so big already. And lately I even commented my wife just said, I feel like I've watched a lot more YouTube than ever before. I don't know if it's because I guess I technically am a YouTube creator now and I didn't really think of myself that way until recently. Uh, on a fun note, I'm pretty sure that this is gonna be the episode that tips our channel over a million views, which is pretty mm. crazy. So last time we checked, we were really, really close. And I think this is going to be the one that puts us over a million views. So if you're watching right now, thank you, because you helped us <laughs> get over a million views, which I think is amazing. So we've got about 20 minutes left in the episode. I want to move on to some other questions just to make sure we get through it. So one of the things that I want to get into is We've talked a lot about retention. We've talked a lot about acquisition, but the reality is all acquisition is not created equal. Some of the time you end up, you're trying to effectively create demand. And sometimes you're trying to capture demand. And I think a lot of people don't think about the nuance of this. If someone's not familiar with you, you're effectively brand building, you're introducing them to your business, your brand for the very first time. So you're effectively creating demand that's way up the funnel. And then you've got, you know, people who maybe are aware of your category, they're aware of your product, or maybe they're aware of you specifically, and maybe there's multiple places where people can buy you. So you're trying to capture that demand as people kind of hunt down your business. 
And so I'd like to try and understand post-pandemic, how do you think people should be shifting up their strategies? And Krista, why don't we start with you this time? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm a huge advocate for full funnel marketing. Nielsen came out with a study last year that was like full of great data, but one of them that really stuck out for me is the businesses that are investing in upper funnel, so that creating demand in conjunction with mid and lower funnel are seeing like a growth in their ROI by 13 to 17%. I think the trick is, you know, people really struggle, brands are struggling to justify to CEOs, CFOs to maybe invest in brand because it cannot be measured in the same way. You can't utilize the same lower funnel metrics to measure top of funnel. I would encourage more brands to be investing in research to understand really what is the current state of the brand? What is the brand health? And a very simple way to do that is by investing in research to understand what is the awareness and the affinity for your brand versus the competition. That's going to give you a really good read and should be used as a tool when you're designing how much do I invest in creating demand versus capturing demand. And I'll just say when I was at Compass, this was one of the first things that I did. Compass had huge market share in the four markets, particularly in San Francisco. And when you looked at aided and unaided awareness, it was very low. And so if we wanted to get to a place where we were going to compete with some of the other real estate brands for traffic, we would need and get top of mind with buyers and sellers. It meant that where we needed to put our resources was top of funnel rather than investing the majority of the money in lower funnel. And I've heard, unfortunately, more and more brands are investing less, particularly, you know, you B2C like startups, even in series A, series B, series D, don't go back to those basics to just understand what is the current state and utilizing that instead of coming from a place of, I really want to be able to measure everything. And so I'm going to focus and optimize my media mix for last click data but that is not going to help you drive sustainable business growth and enable you to compete with other brands that you're going head to head with. And I got one stat that backs that up. So there was an actual Facebook did a meta-analysis last year on their auction, and it showed that a 30% investment into mid-funnel tactics before Black Friday improved holiday campaigns, decreasing cost per acquisition on average by 13%, and increasing conversion rates by 56%. So helping to prime your audiences before you're asking them to do something, you know, with you actually has a net beneficial impact on lower funnel campaigns. I love that stat. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of the data and insight that comes from Facebook in a second. I very quickly want to call out a little bit of a rant between two things. So first off, I think one of the reasons that people have been pushing back on the brand's acquisition is because their attribution gets really hard. Everyone's freaking out about the acquisition costs going out. And so they're pulling back on that brand spending. And I think it's going to hurt people. And as everyone here, for the most part, is more kind of when you think about acquisition, kind of pre the site, you know, normally your roles are changing the site. And, you know, in my role as a chief digital officer or CMO, and if Christy just probably filmed some of your roles as well, but certainly in mine, I kind of was responsible for the entire experience top to bottom. And the biggest thing that I'm advising other people in similar responsibilities these days is you hear your growth marketers talk about doing A-B testing, multivariate testing, et cetera. 
to see what is the most effective ad, not nearly enough people are doing that on the actual site. So if you can't necessarily control the media cost at the top part, start really getting serious about optimizing your landing pages and your experience for what happens when they do get to the site. You may not be able to reduce the cost per click, but you can probably reduce the cost per acquisition. And so I'm really, really pushing people under doing that. The second big thing is that stat that you said a second ago is great. I love reading those kinds of things from Facebook and I love reading those kinds of things from Google. And I'm going to get on a little bit of a touchy subject here and hopefully don't offend any of my friends at Meta or at Google. But I'm struggling a little bit when I get stuff from them. I, I, that sounds like a data-backed study. That's great. But I'm also having a big issue where I feel like and it's going to be a little wrong, but I feel like Google and Meta got drunk on the amount of money that they were making during the pandemic because everyone was going crazy trying to figure out how to spend money in digital, not necessarily knowing what they were doing. So just pouring money into it and resources and people and time. And then when that started to slow down a little bit, I just get this vibe that like the sales leaders over there or the, whoever it's pushing the sales reps at these places to sell at any cost. And I'm got to the point where I'm just ignoring their phone calls. I don't want to talk to anyone at Google. I don't want to talk to my reps there unless they're very, very senior people. And then for Meta, the same exact thing, because their advice is not good advice. It's definitely like increased budget or increase the you know, broad match so that I increase the number of people I read. But it's not decreasing my cost for acquisition. It's not decreasing my cost per click. Is not necessarily good for my clients. And these are great brands that are struggling a little bit right now. And they want to figure out how to get back in the right path. But they talk about their stock damage, their revenue damage, you know, the news and things like that. But no one's talking about the brand damage that they've done to themselves where they're not trusted. Being a trusted brand, being an authoritative brand is so important in their case. And I don't trust them anymore. And I'm not talking to these people nearly as much as you guys are probably getting bombarded with them. So I'd love to hear, maybe just by a show of hands, it's like a thumbs up or thumbs down on agreement of this general sentiment. A little bit in the middle. Okay. Well then zero. And then you gotta, I gotta ask you first. What's your, I, I think it's, I have a nuanced point of view. So I don't mean the, to poke fun to my friends there. Cause I'm going to kind of get some shit from some people. I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> they, they have different teams. So they have yeah, like, you know. I like to think about it like three different tiers and depending on the size of the clients that you're working with, you might, you know, be in tier one with some of like the most senior people that are smart and like passionate. And then mm -hmm. other times, you know, you're, you're kind of at that tier three because you're- The Cole you're, Central, the Cole Central people. Right. And so I think it's important to keep that into context. hundred that percent. And that's, always, and that's kind of what I meant was alluding to with the more senior folks. I yeah. Agree I appreciate that point of clarification. Yeah. It's also the other thing is understanding this is a these companies are big organizations and it's mm -hmm. like, they don't know everybody who works there. And there's just so many projects and teams and like different engineers. And it's learning how to navigate with that partnership of like, how do we get the right resources? Cause a lot of times there is solutions. It's just that these organizations are so big that it's hard to know everything that's happening. One of the things that I had a lot of success with in the past when I was at group M is we built this alpha accelerator for new products for alpha testing and for beta testing. So what was happening was Facebook was basically going to just different people in the agency and saying, Hey, we have this new thing. We want to test. We have this new thing. And sometimes the brands were like, this doesn't make sense for us. Like, you know, it's not a priority for our business or we don't have the budget or whatever it was. And then Facebook would be like, okay, well we tried. 
but there might be somebody else in the agency or in the organization that was ready to partner with them on that opportunity. And so one of the things we figured out was by centralizing this work stream of tell us everything that you have in the pipeline for the month, come to the agency lead, and then we'll then disperse this within our organization. Not every client might be the right partner, but we can find you somebody. So it was finding ways of working, you know, with these complex organizations and being able to get in front of the right people at the right time. But again, it's a challenge. So there's no silver bullet here, but I do think that it, there's really smart people and really great partners there. It's just finding that right balance of working with them. Someone over there is sending you a thank you note right now, sticking out for them. So I'm glad that there's different points of view on this. And I want to be clear, it's totally fair. This shouldn't be a blanket statement, but I've had, a, I had too many phone calls for some of our smaller clients or frankly, even my pet projects where I am a tier three project and I can tell the person there is reading off a script and doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. They think it's driving their revenue. But I think it's really hurting them. Katie, I feel like you and I were laughing about this the other day, about some of your experiences. Do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I think we're having parallel experiences with our Facebook mm -hmm. reps, for sure. They're calling you and then they're calling me and neither one of us are answering. So they're calling the other maybe. <laughs> and I do think it, it's unfortunately it is. I've worked with the big brands and I've had amazing service and they really want to partner with you. But I do feel like there is very significant drop-off in service. And so I think from what we were talking about earlier around customer experience, like their customer experience is extremely inconsistent. And as I work with my small and my medium brands who are navigating their way into these platforms for the first time for some of them, or they're expanding into these platforms in new and different ways, not having any level of support realistically is an unfortunate situation for them. And I do think the long-term it is going to be detrimental to those brands. On the flip side, I will give a shout out. Like I have recently had an incredible experience with LinkedIn reps for relatively small brands, like very helpful and strategic partners over there. So I don't know that like that's a sample size of one. I can't speak across the board. But when I look at my channel, like as a channel expert, and I still look for support from those brands and those partners, there's definitely been a difference in experience. So. We'll see what the future is to come. We'll see what the future looks like. Speaking of the future, I'm going to ask a question about the future that I probably should have left an entire episode for, but hey, we're going to try and cram it into 10 minutes. So here we go. <laughs> One of the most contentious slash fascinating conversations happening right now is about AI. Now, everyone's fascinated in it, but I think there's a lot of contention, especially with any industry that involves creative folks and absolutely marketing sits at the center of that. I would love to kind of get your guys feeling on the value of creativity and maybe what role you see, if any, for AI to play in that. I would like to hear everyone's point of view. We could have a whole episode on this. So I want to try and time box everyone to maybe two minutes and get a sense of kind of what your point of view is. And we may have a follow-up episode in the making. We'll see how passionate you guys are about it. Well, let's start with you, Krista. I mean, I think creativity is a critical driver for growth for any business. I think too often creative experiences, brand stories sit outside or perceive to be sitting outside the growth engine. But the truth is they play a critical role for all the reasons that we've talked about in this episode particularly around the value of delivering emotionally driven, cohesive brand experiences across the full customer journey. I think when it comes to AI, the data set plays a really critical role in how 
accurate, how impactful it will be in and its role in creativity. So I think right now I personally use it. I know a lot of my colleagues see it as like a great starting off point. It can give you some initial territories as a strategist on my putting my strategist hat on. It is an incredible tool for research, but I have to check like where these insights from a platform like ChatGPT is coming from before I can really utilize it. And I think until those data sets are a little bit more accurate and you can really source where some of this is coming from, I think it can be utilized as a springboard, but I do not think it is a solution entirely. I don't think we'll ever, I don't mean, maybe I'm making a bold statement here, but I don't think it'll ever replace creative solutions. You know, people and brands at the end of the day, they want to buy from people. And I think people are best suited to be creating wonderful, delightful, creative, innovative, thought-provoking experiences, you know, beyond what technology can fully deliver. Fair, good and fair point. Zaren, what's your take? I agree. I think that humans need to lead a creative strategy. But if you think about the supply chain of creative, right now there's a big problem that is impacting performance of campaigns which is that usually brands don't have enough of it and they don't have it customized to the different channels, which I get it. It's tough because you might have a business with multiple product lines or lines of businesses, and then you have to create different campaigns for the different audiences and the stages of the journey. And then now you have to permutate that by different platforms. So I think where AI augments this from a resourcing perspective, it's towards the end. It's once you have creative strategists that conceptualize something, you don't want to pay the cost to have an agency make these assets and all these variations. It's enormous. Mm -hmm. I think that's where AI comes into things. We need like, the ad tech industry to build solutions around that. And there's already some precursors to that. Like we have dynamic creative optimization partners that could take assets and iterate. We already know that platforms like Facebook and Google and TikTok have invested in AI. In fact, if you make an ad in TikTok, and it's underperforming. TikTok will replicate a version of that and it'll tell you, hey, you should use this version. So we know that th these capabilities exist, mm -hmm. but we need and, like- And they're fully integrated into the platforms already in some cases. Yeah, it's already yeah. built into the platform. The thing is that TikTok's not gonna build a solution that can then, you know, span across other channels and platforms. Mm -hmm. So we need the ad tech world to stand up in this moment and like build us some AI to solve some of the challenges towards the end of the supply path and then just, you know, make it easy for brands to scale. So it's particularly useful. And I think like things like A-B testing and for trying to find the right best variant of an ad, sometimes our brains were great at coming up with creative solutions, but maybe not able to see the 50 other ways you could get to the same path. And I think AI is really good at that kind of stuff. They're creating variations. I'm using it for another project of ours right now for creating variations on landing pages. And it's actually more of an organic sort of thing. So Katie, what's your take? Yeah, I think these guys nailed it. I think Krista's point around it's a starting point is exactly right. Because I think at the end of the day, there is some level of creativity that can't be modeled, can't be replicated. But what I talked about earlier around you know, clients who have interest in the next channel of growth or, or the next phase of growth. And we have really hard conversations around the resources required to sustain those channel presences in the long term. I absolutely see AI as a solution to get through that next phase of growth. I think if we're able to produce at a more efficient 
right, then we can go a lot further. We can do a lot more. One of the things I also think we haven't talked so much, I think we've focused around imagery here, but I think this applies to copy as well. An essence of a brand is certainly something that needs to be honed in, needs to be sharpened. And I think humans do a really good job of creating that brand essence. But the ways in which we can express it from a copy perspective, I think AI can come in and ultimately provide us with all kinds of different iterations and options. And then as we test them in the platforms to see what performs, it's just more data to feedback and continue iterating. I'm super excited about it. I think the brands that are ready to jump in and test it are going to be that much further ahead than those that are reticent or hesitant. I'm not advocating that we just turn chat GPT on and let it write a website, to be clear, but I, I think it's context in the right framework. I'm going to use a bit of a dark metaphor for why I think marketers need to embrace it. And the human in me recognizes that this could disrupt jobs or roles of close friends of mine. At the same time, the business owner and business manager and leader in me sees this almost like it's almost like a nuclear arms race. It's like, you don't necessarily know if we want to have them, but we can't afford to let everyone else have them because it's of its ability to drive efficiency or drive competitive advantage. So it's basically, it's going to force everyone to adopt a lot of these technologies. And that's why this will, without a doubt, be the next major technology revolution. So I want to be conscious of time. Not only is this the million, probably the million view crossing mark. I think this might be the longest episode in OSHIP history, but the content and the conversation was so much fun and I enjoyed it so much. There were so many great ideas that I didn't want to cut anyone off. I didn't even get to half the things I wanted to get into, but this is going to be a great episode and I know people are going to benefit from all the knowledge that was shared. So let's do some basic stuff. What's the best way for people to find you guys? Is it LinkedIn? Yeah. Seems like everyone's LinkedIn is their main thing now. Is there, and I know you're also a YouTuber as well. So is your channel got a name or something that people should Yeah, they can just look up market and hustle on YouTube, or they can just type in youtube.com forward slash market hustle. Market hustle. Awesome. I love it. I've seen a bunch of videos here. You're doing great stuff. So if you enjoyed this episode, it's great to check him out. If anyone here resonates with someone that you might find as a useful expert, doesn't just have to be a YouTube video, you know, go to chameleoncollective.com. And you can submit a form there to reach out to the sales team. Any one of these experts is available to you to help you with your business. Krista, Katie, Zarin, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. For all of you who are watching our ship, thank you again for your support. Thank you for helping us cross the million uh, view on the channel, Mark. But well past 100 episodes now, I continue to do this with great enthusiasm because of the support from all of you. Whether you love the show or just like it, best thing you can do to support us is give us a like, share it on your friend's feed. Just even leaving a comment means a lot to us, but really subscribing to the channel or following us on the social platforms is the best thing you can do. And if you just want to see all the other places we stream or discover our audio feeds, please just go to oshipshow.com and you'll see links to every major streaming platform, whether it's audio feed or video feed. Thank you to all the chameleons that joined today. And we'll see all of you guys next week on OSHA.